Welcome to another episode of Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, a podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Trash. And I am Joaquin Lobo. And we'll be your host for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you? Fine. I'm just amazed at how well you look. You look great, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you referring to <clears throat> my attempt at a beard? <laughs> well, let's not talk about beards because I, I am growing a beard myself and a lot of people are confused. Yeah, that's the first time I think I've, I, I see you. Well, I don't think it's a beard. A beard, a beard. I just think it's a messy, you know, uh, accumulation of facial hair. But I, I don't feel like I can grow a real beard. I, it's just hair. Yeah, like when, when it gets to the point that I can take it actually between my fingertips and pull, that's a beard. Okay. I mean, then it becomes a beard. But like but but it's also like a Northern California thing, you know. In order to fit in, I think you have to have a beard here. Well, I, exactly. I think it's just part of the culture now. That there seems to be this idea of masculinity in the not. It's not just something from the twenty uh, twenties. It's been around for a while. Masculinity is very much associated with with facial hair. Yeah. No, I, I think that's correct, yeah. There's something about the beard, but I, I, I don't think I can grow actually enough beard to, to become this kind of lumberjackian right. kind of guy. Right. Yeah. But it used to be the unshaven kind of look, right? Yes. But now it's the beard. People are going for the... For, I mean, it started with the hipsters, I guess, uh, 10, 15 years ago. That lumberjack look that you mentioned, yeah, that, flannel uh, shirt. You know, people in in the Auckland, Temescal area, um, looking kind of rough and crafty, as if you know they were just leaving their workshops where they were probably carving a canoe or making beer. Yeah, it was slicked back hair. Like slightly wet looking, slick yep. back hair, and then the the real beard. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever. I'll, I I don't think I can pull that off. But. No, me either. But I I don't know if I'm going for a look. To be honest, I just didn't feel like shaving at some point during the pandemic. I was like, oh, more of the same. So I let my hair grow and my facial hair grow, and now I have what seems to be a beard. But I'm I'm getting a little bit self conscious. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think a beard is a good way to hide behind, especially when you get sort of older and your chin might be loosening a little bit or any of these signs of age. And then you have the beard that, that provides you with very sharp contours again or or the blurring of contours. So it's it's a convenience, I think, for a lot of guys. But I might be wrong. No, I agree. I also think that it's um, probably uh, you're signaling, uh, probably mat when you're older, you're signaling maturity with your white beard, all the white yeah. hair. Uh, maybe you become um, more respectable, um, less threatening. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's also the segue into the 
not so obviously sexual realm. You're not trying to to attract people to you in this very carnal way. You're saying I've I've reached a different point in my life. Well, you just made me think of Hemingway. I, I just started to think. You, you were you were talking about Hemingway in the in the uh, episode with Mauricio Montiel, and you were talking about his brilliant short stories. But you know, thinking of Hemingway, he had a beard, and I remember him with a beard, and that's yeah. the archetype of the macho, tough, rugged American writer, right? But but he also started when he was older. So that right. might have also had something to do with that. But yes, yes, absolutely. But don't you imagine Hemingway in Cuba, somewhere in Cuba, with you know the uh, Hawaiian shirt open, showing off his uh, chest hair, and you know with a long beard, drinking mojitos or whatever he was drinking. That's like to me the archetypal image of you know the tough, macho, free, assertive, successful individual. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, and and that's something I kind of miss. I don't miss necessarily the masculinity behind it or or how it played out. But when I grew up um, in the seventies, uh, people, yeah, they the shirts were open, chest hair was coming out, um, and they had to smoke. Of course, everybody who was anything had to smoke. Like, and and so there this. To me, there's still this image from television of the singers with a glass of whiskey in one hand, a cigarette in the other hand, and and singing and and doing this. And 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 they weren't always big guys. They often were smaller dudes. They they didn't have big muscles or any of that, but they were men. And and now you have to shave your chest in order to be okay. You have to be very buff. You have to be more this Channing Tatum kind of kind of guy. <laughs> and, and 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 I sort of miss this easy masculinity that people had. Not what it what it represented in in with gender roles and and gender inequality, but this. I have an open shirt. I'm awesome. So this 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 just easy identification. Like I can open my shirt. I can have chest hair. It doesn't have to be pretty. I have a glass of whiskey in my hand, and I'm awesome. And in that easy, yeah, this easy masculinity. I I really kind of miss. Yeah, but that's. Do, do you see yourself like that? I don't know. In ten years, some some somewhere. No, but. Um, no, no, not not at all. And I, and I think that kind of role play, because that's what it was. I mean, you were portraying a man. I mean, these people uh, on stage with their shirts open, they were portraying, of course, masculinity, playing masculinity. And, and I don't think that works at all anymore, because now it signifies old guys who still think that there's an essence to masculinity and femininity and uh, it, it stands for old attitudes uh, for gender inequality and so the meaning of that has changed a lot and I don't think you can't you can't get get it back it, it, it was once in a lifetime and I don't think that anybody can pull it off 
again unless it's ironic. Right. If you have an ironic bent to it, if you said, oh, I'm impersonating someone from the 70s and I'm making that my shtick, then yeah, that's totally fine. But without an ironic break, you, you can't really pull that off anymore because it, it really it really represents a bad history and and yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, it's hard to be nostalgic about um, masculine role models from the 50s or 60s or 70s. I mean, they were pretty nasty times. Yes. For Maybe not for men, but whoever had to deal with them, with us. Um, I, I, I see what you're saying. It reminds me, I don't know, 20 years ago in the San Francisco Bay Area that I saw a lot of people into you know, wearing outfits and looking like San Franciscans from the 1930s and 40s. And it was really cool. I mean, the guys look great and the women look fantastic. You know, wearing those fedora hats, the Stetsons, the nice expensive suits that they purchase in vintage clothing and some of them driving the old 1940s cars and... But I, I, I don't know how ironic it was, to be honest. I, I think they, I think they were, pre, they were pretty serious about it. And it was something that I really appreciate, which was also the music that was the, the, the musical score to, the, to that scene. Because the music from those times is beautiful. You know, just from the 1930s is fantastic. But I don't know to what degree they were being ironic. I, don't, I think they were being nostalgic. As if, you know, that was a time where men were men and women were women. Um, and that's something that I agree with you. We cannot go back to that these days. It, it would be pretty ludicrous to do that. Yeah, and the, the whole concept, I think, of masculinity is a little bit as obsolete in the ways that it was defined before maybe the 2000s. Um, there's nothing, there's no male domain anymore the one thing that only men can do other than maybe playing in the nfl but there's nothing really specifically male about any job any any activity anymore we don't we don't separate the genders like we did in the 50s to 70s anymore and and so i think the question i, I don't even know what masculine really is anymore what specific quality makes a man a man I, I really don't know i don't think there is anything we still have these concepts but i don't know they don't say really much anymore but what do you say about books that are and i don't know if this is still happening these days but there are many books that are written with not with him but with testosterone they're very male books, very masculine books. The point of view is masculine. The ideology is very masculine. The the values, the prejudice. You know, I'm thinking of. I I think I mentioned James Elroy a couple episodes back, um, and I always thought of James Elroy as this, you know, kind of traumatized. I mean, the mother was murdered. Uh, kind of vengeful angry, cop-admiring, cop-loving white guy from 
LA racist who could tell a really good story, uh, but represented that series of features that now identify as toxic masculinity. And every single one of his books is infused with that testosterone that just, you know, spills right off the pages. Um, can we think of masculine um, literature? I'm not sure, really. I, I find it hard to save those books. I mean, I can still read them and remember at least with some authors the times they were written in and how people defined themselves and how they looked at each other but uh, to to today's audience i i think it it just it's offensive um it feels the the racism feels sharp and not very helpful to anything. So, so again, I think we're, we're getting to the point where where certain books become artifacts, not living texts anymore, but um, relics from a bygone era. Something that we can read in in academia, and we can bring it to the classroom and provide context for them. But as texts that you want to pick up in the bookstore, they probably have outlived their usefulness. There are these books with a lot of facial hair. Yeah, books with a lot of what facial hair. Hairy books. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there is anything we can do really to to regain a previous sense of masculinity at some point, and I totally exaggerate here, but at some point it was enough to have a job, put food on the table for your family, and you were a man. That, that was that was it. Right. It, was, it was a very easy thing, but uh, for many, many years, for most of our marriage, my wife has always made more money than I did. So that never held really true. And it's not enough anymore to even be the breadwinner and then say, oh, I'm I'm the man. Um, some people in our society, of course, still live with that model. I mean, it hasn't entirely died. But I think we're developing something else. And I don't know what that is exactly, how we're going to redefine genders or families or what the position of the breadwinner is, what we make of that. But the old models of identification, the old models of what it took to make you a man, you don't cry, you bring home the bacon, all these stereotypes, all of that is no longer true. Now it's okay to cry, at least in, in many areas, not in all areas, but still it's it's way more accepted. You can cry, you can show emotion, you're even really um, people demand from you that that you show emotion. And I don't know where exactly that leaves us if at some point we can get rid of most of these tags or redefine the tags in a more meaningful, more equitable way. But right now I feel the whole masculinity thing is, is, I mean, people only know now the tag 
toxic masculinity. I don't think there's any positive view of, oh, he's so masculine. I don't think that really exists anymore. But Unless you're Tom Brady. He's, he's retiring now. Yes. What a loss for man. Yeah. At 44. Ah. He's an grandpa. He's ancient. Yes. yes. He, last time year. time to retire. He was the oldest player in the NFL last year. Yeah, I'm glad he's retiring. <laughs> he wins too much. And he needs to, or he used to. He was just uh, eliminated from the game, from the big game. He had his team. He went to the University of Michigan, so he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a beard. Maybe he now he'll, Tom Brady will grow a beard. Yeah, it's true. No, he doesn't have any facial hair. When, no. when did that change? At what point we stopped writing masculine books? I'm thinking, I'm thinking of uh, Dave Eggers. Remember Dave Eggers? Yeah, sure. I think he was kind of the one of those guys who sort of uh, brought to to the great public the idea of the. You know the sensitive guy. I'm yes. sure there were others before, but I think he made it very popular. Yeah, the guy who was very open and very concerned about gender equality and social justice and anti-racism. Yes, and and raising his brother and exactly. Yeah, well, that book, a great. What was the name of the book? The famous book. Oh, uh, it's heartbreaking a work, work of staggering, staggering genius. genius. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, he, he definitely portrayed a very different kind of masculinity. And I think that's probably the kind of masculinity we're drifting towards. But I think there's a big question mark about that. What what really is an acceptable masculinity? Because we have identified so many ways in which the traditional masculinity can be super toxic. But what is really left or what is the new thing? And... I don't think we have a good answer. If if I had a child right now, and it, and if it were a boy, I'm not exactly sure how to really try to f tell him how to live or what to be, other than, well, just try to be yourself. But it's not really very, super great advice when you're 10, 12, or whatever. And... Um, all the rules that all the rules that we need as teenagers to navigate relationships, friendships, uh, school, maybe the first job, all that, everything has changed drastically, I think. And it's it's hard to really it's hard to really give give a teenager who asks, well, Daddy, what's a man? I I, I have no idea. Yeah. I have a 14-year-old. He doesn't want to have those conversations with me. He runs away every time I say, okay, <laughs> it's time to have the talk. And he just like looks at me like, no way. I don't want to have any kind of talk. And I, I respect that. I worry, but I respect that. I yeah. had a talk with my mother, who was oh. a biology teacher. And yeah. she, she gave me the talk, and we talked about condoms. And I was... A little bit freaked out by that. Yeah. But again, you know, that goes back to the issue of uh, prescriptive 
education where you're supposed to 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 follow these rules and impart these lessons and to make sure that your kids are prepared for this for that in a in a in the way in which you understand is the right way, whatever that means. But I don't know if that it has to be that way. One thing I notice is that men still don't wear bright colors unless they're playing sports. That is still taboo. You still have to go with the grays, the navies, the blacks. Um, if you if you want to be serious, if you if you want to, yeah, if you if you want to play the authority card, you still have to wear darker colors. It's 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 always so boring. You go into a shoe store or any clothing store, and you get blues and greens and browns and grays, and you never get really cool bright colors and I'm really annoyed by that I wrote a story back in the 80s one of my very first short stories um, and I just remember that when you were talking about it because the name of the story was Pink Shirt and I wrote it because a girl that I met at the time told me something like you know the first thing that I like about you that you that you wore a pink shirt Ah, and I, that was a revelation to me. First, because I was never aware that I was wearing a pink shirt. I just wore it without any kind of you know agenda or consciousness or it. It was not a fashion statement. And the uh, fact that she said that sort of revealed to me that women, some women, this woman in particular, found appealing that. Um, gesture of that manifestation of fashion freedom that I was not restricted to the codes of you know masculine uh, garments and, and and colors and that probably told me at the time something interesting about um, the kind of relationships I could have with women based on certain clues cues that I was offering. Yeah. Yeah, I, I clearly remember I liked wearing bright colors. I remember winter when I had this mustard color parka. I, I always had very colorful sweaters. And at some point, I noticed that people looked at me in a slightly condescending way when I wore very bright outfits. And starting my professional life, I switched to muted colors just to signal, okay, I'm, I'm a team player. I, I do what's expected from me. And, and it was a very conscious decision. And I don't think you have to do that anymore. But uh, 25, 30 years ago, it was, it was still a thing, where at least in certain scenarios, it's still a thing, that you just can't get away wearing bright colors if you're a guy. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. What I do know, what I do think I know, is that we love to look like other people. You know, it's pretty safe. Uh, because you just belong to that tribe and you don't have to worry about anything if everyone 
looks like you, then then you are safe. Everything should be okay. I wonder if that's the case for writing books, that it's pretty safe to write the same kind of stories that other people are writing. Yes, most certainly. No, I think that's why we also get a lot of the same stories, because it does feel safer to try to tell the same story just slightly differently than to tell your own story. And I think that's why I like a lot of books, like I mentioned previously, I Love Dick by Chris Krause. And I, I really am drawn to books that give a shit about convention or what other people might be thinking, but are trying to stay true to something that was very important to them and not care, oh, is the larger public okay with that? Or is that a successful book in terms of sales, but just to to hang on to something that that sometimes feels um, slightly uncomfortable, that feels very private at times, but is unique at every step. How about you? I mean, when, when you write, uh, are you afraid that people will look at the text and go, oh, there's no context for that, or that shouldn't exist, or this is not a book. Since I write in cultural isolation and I have no points of reference to what I do, and by that I mean that I am writing a body of work in Spanish, living in the U.S. Every single one of my books I write in Spanish in the U.S. And that's, I, I believe, very lonely and sort of difficult thing to do because there is no echo chamber. I have no one to share my work with. I just write, hoping that I'm doing a good job. And the things that I read from my contemporaries in Spanish are radically different because, you know, they're books written in Mexico by Mexicans or in Argentina by Argentinians or in Spain by Spaniards and Colombia by Colombians and so on. I think that they they do have a conversation with a national literature and with fellow writers from those places, and I don't feel that I have a conversation with anyone. Hmm. Um, so that gives me, I believe, a freedom in terms of really not giving a shit about the outcome of what I'm doing. Also, I don't have a huge readership. I, you know... Some people like to call me a uh, cult writer, you know, whatever that means. That means that very few people read my books and they think they're cool. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I don't have massive sales of my of my novels, so that gives me a lot of freedom. I can basically write whatever the hell I want and don't have to fear the consequences because I won't have critics writing about me in the. Sunday review of the New York Times saying, oh, you know, this guy's novel, it's, it's terrible, especially after the wonderful novels he, he has given us in the past. You know, nothing <laughs> like that is going to happen to me. So being a writer like that, it's a very freeing experience because no one will care, or very few people will care. You think about that? Um. Yeah, um, 
I, I like what you say about writing in isolation um, because I, I find that to be very freeing and, and kind of nicer than to try and write for a specific audience. I think when I started to write, I, I had no particular audience really in mind. I was just expecting a broader public, I think. But over time, I really, I, I, I sort of had a short brush with um, a little more exposure. Um, and I don't think that that helped my writing at all, because then you're suddenly thinking about, oh, what might this get me? Or is this a good follow-up to this one book? Or is this acceptable to my agent or my publisher or any of that? And while it's not necessarily bad, um, it does screw with your mind, or with my mind it screwed at least a little bit. Um, and And I took very violent steps not to repeat myself or not to write the same book twice but a little bit different but that also even this this violence of trying something entirely else was of course a reaction to something that happened previously right now i feel i'm at the point where nobody cares whether i write another book or not and and that suits and and that suits me really totally well um, it's it's really lovely because I don't feel I have to fulfill anything. I can put in whatever I want, whatever is important to me, what I feel needs to be on my page. And if I have 30 people who buy my book and read it, that'd be great. If it's 100 or 500, even more awesome, but... Um, if too many people would agree with me, a friend of mine in Berlin said always, I would start to become very worried about what I'm thinking. And and I have adopted what he said, like for my own sake, um, because I also feel that if too many people agree with me or if too many people think that what I'm writing is super relatable and exactly what they're thinking i should be very worried you know i i, I want I, I don't want to write books that exclude people or make them feel i don't know weird like just by design but but i also don't want to hold back anything and if that makes them uncomfortable or whatever that's their problem but not my problem and so i feel more freedom to just really write what I want to see on the page. I love what you said about the violence, uh, the violent decision, the violence with which you made that decision because you know, that reminded me of a couple of things. The first one, something that I I had intuition very early on when I wrote my, my first novel that I never wanted to write the same novel again. And that every single book uh, that I write and publish would have to be radically different because I, I just couldn't repeat myself. And that was, I think, really um, a great way for me to measure the degree with which I was 
going into 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 this path of of becoming a novelist as soon as i identify something that i don't before i immediately rejected that with that kind of violence that you mentioned and i was also thinking of a, a, a french writer that i really like that i'm actually reading right now emmanuel carrere who has done you know kind of the same and i haven't read any interview where he addresses this directly but every single one of his books is very very different i'm reading now a book called the kingdom that it was a total surprise i had no idea um emmanuel carrere who was who is someone who had a very public life he's super famous i say that in terms of male french writers there are two big names in france for the past 20 25 years. Michel Hulbeck and Emmanuel Carrere. There are many more, obviously, but I say that these are the ones that seem to to be always um, up there in terms of public attention and media and, and, and you know, so, so celebrity status in, in France. Um, and Emmanuel Carrere was kind of you know, very public in terms of his sentimental life, his candles, his son of a, his son of the president of the French Academy, you know, kind of French royalty, rich kid. And he wrote all kinds of books from fiction to nonfiction, addressing a lot of different things. He wrote a biography of Philip K. Dick. And this book is about religion, his experience with with the Catholic religion, how he's embracing Catholicism. Mm. And that totally surprised me because I, I had no idea that someone who was, you know, kind of a libertine, you know, very rebel in his own way, was at the same time someone who would embrace in such an open and profound way Catholicism. And with which also surprised me because I I never imagined that I could admire someone who identifies so much with a religion that I that I find, you know, kind of ridiculous myself. I was never raised as a Catholic. I always say I'm the only Mexican who's not a Catholic. My mother was a Methodist. I'm not a Methodist. So you know I kind of had no religion, nothing to 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 shed in terms of religion as I was growing up and becoming something else. But that that's something that I like. Writers that that keep surprising me. I, I find it also very strange when writers turn out to be religious. I, for some reason that doesn't go together for me at all. Um, there's of course many examples of people embracing certain denominations, certain schools of thoughts, and so on. But to, to me, it, it, it's, it's strange to, to take the liberties you have to take in, in writing your stories, your books, your novels, but then to stick to a worldview that is rather ancient, that hasn't been updated, um, we have seen a few concessions by the Catholic Church, but by and large, they're still 
from the early 1900s maybe in their in their morals in in how they look at women uh, we have seen a pretty complete failure to address the problem of sexual abuse in the catholic church and to me that's that's really strange um, um i was raised lutheran protestant and uh, in later life i thought that the catholic church seems more attractive because they know how to put on a show the whole aspect of showmanship has been somewhat removed from protestants and i think um, it's a very sensuous experience uh, to be in a Catholic church, for better and worse. But it's, but it's a very, it, it, it's, a, it's a religion that takes into account our weaknesses and acknowledges them. We have the confession in Protestantism, we don't have that. And my pastor always said that is the one thing that he wished the Protestants hadn't done away with. Still, to, to me, to take the freedom to write what you think, but also to need the crutch, and I can only see it as a crutch, of religion strikes me as, as very strange. Do you still practice uh, your religion, Tim? Only until I was confirmed. I had confirmation and that basically ended that um in do germany do you miss religion no i don't i i think it provides comfort for a lot of people and that's of course also a stereotype and a, maybe a trite statement but but i do acknowledge that at, at times it would be great to be able to say oh there's this context philosophical context that provides me with a ready-made view of the world where I can fit in, but that has never worked for me. And there are many instances when I regret that that is missing, but more often I think, oh, it's so good that that is missing and that I have to come to terms with my faults, with uh, the things I do on my own terms and not have the guidance but I do, but I do agree with my pastor. Like confession, I think, is sort of the precursor to psychotherapy, and that was something good that the Catholic Church retained. I think, in its purest form, that's actually a very helpful tool, because of course we all do things that we later regret, and at least we can say them to somebody who's not our family and who just judges us not in that most human way. I always think of Graham Greene, who became a Catholic and wrote a series of novels that I absolutely adore, known as his Catholic novels. Among them, uh, one of my three most important novels that I, that I read in my entire life, um, The End of the Affair, where he deals with 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 the issue of the amazing power of an invisible God and how you either accept or reject that. Um, and you know, this is a very complex story because 
first of all, is based on a real relationship that he had with a lover, um, Catherine Walston. And the story that takes place during the Blitz in London and the war with the uh, Second World War is such a, at the same time, such a powerful study on, on jealousy. Mm. And uh, very passionate nature of, of sex and, and love in a, in a relationship. It's just magnificent. But everything is permeated with, with a theme of, of a God, a jealous God. Um, so if finding God, accepting God will result in the writing of a book such as this one or, or, or The Power of the Glory, which is the other book that he wrote that's set in, in Mexico, then by all means, let's, let's embrace the possibility of God with, with the passion of the convert, right? Because it can, <laughs> it can help you write amazing novels. And I don't know if, if it was because of that, but at some point I, when I felt very lonely when I turned 40, 20 years ago, I decided to explore the idea of, of God and, and to decide whether or not I wanted to embrace a religion. And of course, that was going to be a Catholic religion. Uh, and I, you know, I, I did some research. I had a friend who was a priest. I attended a couple uh, masses and read a lot and, and talked to a lot of people and decided that it wasn't really something that 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 was for me. I there was an, an element, probably what you call the performance or the show. I don't know how you call that a few minutes ago. The performative element of the religion yeah. that I just found not really. I don't know. I I didn't buy into it. Yeah, but yeah. maybe that's something that provides. Not, not maybe, certainly that provides a great deal of comfort for millions of people. The so-called ritual, right? No, no, I, I, I do love rituals. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about rituals. I, I love the ritual of the classroom. I love the ritual of having a cocktail in the evening. <laughs> I'm, I like things. I'm, I'm very deep down inside. Um, very dependent on certain things to be done a certain way. It just never fit in with a larger philosophy or or religion. Um, so, and I think that 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 religion in books is is really problematic when when you feel the power of a certain religion, denomination, whatever in the pages um, it to me it lessens the enjoyment of the book if i feel that certain opinions that are being expressed in a book have to bend to the will of a larger organ organization and that doesn't always have to be a religion for example uh, i read Hermann Hesse, when I was in my 20s, much later than most people do. When I grew up in Germany, people mostly read him when they were teenagers. Yep. He was very... Same in Mexico. 
very cultish thing. You had to read Hermann Hesse, and I didn't. I, I read one of his and didn't really sit right with me. But later on, in my early to mid-20s, a teacher of mine said, oh, you need to read this. And so I read it, and I read uh, a few more books of his. Um, but then taken together with my interest in psychotherapy and um, sort of off the beaten path therapy. Um, I also saw his shortcomings, how he always, his characters have always to turn back into the realm of, the realm of routine, the realm of social norms, the realm of normal morals, whatever normal at the time is normal. Um, so a lot of a lot of his his main characters or narrators have to submit to the powers they rebelled against, and I, I hated that. At the end of the novel, they either turn into the into the fathers they hated, or they find refuge with religion. Um, any number of those, and and I couldn't read him anymore because I was like, you you're going so far in charting your own course in the book and then you lose courage and you just say oh and now i have to reel back the character and make him perform to the old rules again and so i think i think he's screw <laughs> okay <laughs> me ponder like um pontificating about other writers but 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 I, I think he screwed up his books, his own books, by giving in to the thing he just couldn't get rid of or get over. Um, and so so he always felt he had to pull back and and yeah, so so I think that is that is very flawed in these books. It's never really like a uh, a way of making of showing the reader. Oh, you can be just fine, you know. If if people don't like what you're doing, if you're an outcast, you'll be all right. Yeah, that's too bad. But but so so religion, I think, can have a very bad influence on fiction, and it's also hard to, I feel, write books with religious themes that won't look very antiquated twenty years down the road, fifty years down the road. Because our attitudes towards religion change very quickly, and I mentioned this book, *A Good Woman* by Lewis Brumfield, um, and when I read it, even to me at that time, it 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 seemed already a little old-fashioned, but I still got sort of I think the last juice out of it. But his treatment of religion and rebellion against religion now looks just too quaint. That's not how we deal with social issues or religious issues anymore. So bringing, in, bringing religion, and for that matter, politics too, into your writing dates your writing. Sometimes that's great. You know, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm not really concerned with legacy and will people read my books in 150 years because A, I could care less because I'll be dead. And also... Um, if that should happen, great, but that doesn't mean you need to aspire to write a timeless text. 
still if 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 you write about politics and you bring in the politics of the day that has a very short shelf life and so to find ways to bring in politics and religion and not give up on readability is hard it's a tough job what do you think with a, with a few exceptions i was thinking of george orwell uh, yes who is of course a very political essayist and i love his essays and of course we know most of us know orwell because of his fiction uh, 1984 in particular, especially after the Trump era, where that book became incredibly relevant to to the American audience, and it will become very relevant to any audience that has to deal with uh, a Trump-like figure, as we will be seeing more and more in the in the immediate future. I th I think what what makes this books yes the exception is that at some point they became prophetic and they were no longer wild um, dystopic fantasies but they became realities that unfortunately we had to to experience and it also made me think of sex um, you know these are the three big topics that that people always tiptoe around religion, politics, and sex. <laughs> and in thinking of sex, I I remember many, many books, a lot of which I have in my bookshelves uh, by Henry Miller, who was another notorious philanderer who gave detailed accounts of his exploits, sexual exploits in many of his books. And those books that were huge back in the 60s, 70s. I mean, Tropic of Cancer is from the year I was born, 1961. And remember, that it couldn't be published in the U.S. It had to be published in France in by some Olympia press, I think, in, in France. And it took a great deal of time for it to be published in, in by Grove Press in the U.S. I don't know if we can... I'm sure that some people still read Miller with a great deal of pleasure. Uh, but I don't know how would I read Miller these days, his brand of of sex, of sexual exploration, his brand of sexual freedom. Here we have another, uh, I mean, I don't remember any picture of Henry Miller wearing a beard, but he certainly was one of those guys, right? A super macho tough guy, the Picasso figure like rider drinking smoking yeah fucking all over the cafes of paris chasing pussy you know to I, I haven't actually read much of of miller's work um but the main characters i remember were at least always down and out they they never fit into society they weren't users i mean they um, users of women maybe, but they weren't. Um, they didn't have any status. But but they were defined. You know, I I didn't finish that. I used that that expression, chasing pussy, because that was what gave meaning to to those lives. To, mm. to, to Henry Miller himself, in many of his books, that idea of hunting for sex, predators. Right. That's that's the emails that I have of, of Henry Miller. And maybe I'm being a purist because also we cannot 
read these books without, you know, uh, bringing into uh, the conversation sexual and identity politics and everything that's been going on in the last few years that affects the way in which we relate to these narratives. But to to keep that brand of predatory characters as something that is still relevant and pertinent to the contemporary reader, going back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation, maybe you can do that, but in an ironic way, in a yeah. comedic way. Yeah, in a very Don Juan-esque way. Um, Fellini's Casanova, for example, who's who's suffering by from his own drive to to conquer, um, and yeah, I, I think I think with irony you can still portray that, but I don't think we derive the same satisfaction from reading the books because they feel they feel a little bit mean or or at least abusive in many ways because they don't give these characters seek pleasure but it's often at someone else's cost and and i think right now what we see is this idealized notion that when people have a sexual encounter that they should be on equal footing which might be a big lie at the end of the day because um, it's very hard to meet on equal footing uh, during sex and that's also a thing wow we're getting deep into that now but anyway um, <laughs> that I, I don't think a lot of people actually enjoy um, it, it, it's funny I, I always say and I, and, and, and I really believe that that our let's say, sociopolitical reality is always maybe 50 or 60 years ahead of our amorous reality, of our erotic reality. And I feel that while we want to strive for gender equality when it comes to dating and the bedroom and all that, that the equality is something not everybody aspires to at this point because that would be a complete overhaul of how we have been relating to one another and 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 there's always a certain amount of power but but to play with somebody to be a lover with somebody um means that somebody gains power, relinquishes power, uh, and so on and so forth. And there are a lot of sexual fantasies that have nothing to do with equality and, and will people suddenly let go of those? In many ways, we don't actually know what the, our strive for equality means for our sexual pleasure. How do we relate to somebody who is an all- manners equal to us how do we figure that one out and how do we derive pleasure from that and whatever experience or memory we might have of that is going to be very different for the generation of the pandemic 
because they are going through very to, to a gap of time where none of this happened. Everyone was in isolation. Two years have been lost in terms of relationships between people, not just men and women, but you know, every, to everyone. So, how is that going to affect those rituals, those mating rituals, yes. courtship? Um, it's just regular interactions, day-to-day interactions with other people. I, I once read a book that talked about sexual relationships as people usually slotting into uh, top or bottom. Hmm. You want to be either the one who relinquishes power or the one to take power. And so if two people, two tops meet it doesn't work out and the same thing with two bottoms but they they won't they both want to relinquish they 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 want to submit and i don't mean that in any like nasty or nefarious way but they they want to let go and and so you you have to match up in that way but um but i think what like in the whole uh relationship thing uh and I think across everything there's we, we see we see that people just don't want to be the same and they don't want to take the same role or the equal role exactly. they want to have different roles exactly so i don't see the z generation relating to this paradigm this model that you are mentioning they'd be like what what is that you know that doesn't have anything to do with with me I mean, how how come that we're kind of so far behind in in the way that in the ways of the heart, when we really have achieved something else entirely already in the social political arena? Well, we'll figure it out, right? We'll figure out that along with the future of the our beards. Team. Yeah, maybe we will. Maybe we will, or, or maybe we won't. Maybe we'll have always our dark little secret pockets of mayhem, and we'll say one thing when we're when we're in the public arena, and we're doing totally different thing when we're at home. Who knows? Okay, well, let's come to the FDF list <laughs> of recommendations. Do you have a recommendation, Joaquin? Yeah, I'm going to recommend the book now that I was thinking about Emmanuel Carrer. There's a fantastic book that he wrote called The Adversary uh, that tells the story of Jean-Claude Romand, a guy who uh, murdered his family. And it's just one of those amazing non-fiction books that reads very much like a novel. I guess you could say that in a way, Emmanuel Carrer began the entire genre of career nonfiction in France with this book, published probably about 25 years ago. And it's just a, an engaging, super dark, very interesting, well-written story that I highly recommend, The Adversary by Emmanuel Carrer. The other thing that I probably want to recommend is... Um, a film that I just watched that is stunning, the new Joel Cohen film, uh, Macbeth, with Denzel Washington, who to me, you know, is the best American actor. I can think of any other actor that's as 
appealing, powerful, charismatic, uh, magnetic as Denzel Washington. And that's just an amazing uh, adaptation of Shakespeare Macbeth that I I really think you should watch. Cool. How about you, Tim? Um, I also have a book recommendation, and that is Dark Constellations by Pola Oloikcharak. I'm not really sure how to define what she's writing about. Um, it's partly science fiction. It's uh, also partly about capitalism in all its nefarious ways. Um, it's very dark. It's very funny. And I'm still in the middle of it, but it's it's wonderful. And it's, and it's a good example of a book that doesn't give a flying hoot about where exactly it fits in and what genre it's writing in. It just does what it wants to do. And it's riveting. So dark constellations. I just want to mention that I, I'm, I haven't finished Savage Theories by Paula Olajarak, uh, but she's a really interesting writer from Argentina. There is one major writer whose name is Ricardo Piglia, who praised uh, in a very initial way Paula Olajarak's work. And Ricardo Piglia died a while ago, but he's like another cult figure from Latin American. Uh, literature, and that was very impressive. And Paula Lachard seems to be one of those super intellectual, complex writers from Argentina that can tell a story. I don't know this book, uh, Tim, but the other one is just impressive. It's an incredible prose, very complex, very erudite. Sometimes that kind of was tiring a little bit too much, but definitely a, a terrific writer to follow. Awesome. Well, it's time to go. Thank you for listening to Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden. Thanks for joining us. And the music is provided by Springtide. It's Coney Island Train Blues, and it comes via the free music archive. Thank you, and join us again in two weeks. <laughs>